all and welcome back to From the Front Row. My name is Ogi Chibo. And I'm Luke Sampson. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We're a student-led podcast that discusses issues across the field of public health. Today, we're joined by our very own Dean Edith Parker of our College of Public Health. Dean Parker holds her BA from Davidson College, an MPH and Doctor in Public Health from UNC Chapel Hill. She joined on as Professor and Chair of the Department of Community and Behavioral Health in 2010 and was appointed as Dean in 2018. Dean Parker, it's a delight to have you on today to talk to us. Well, thank you so much, Ogie. It's very nice to be here today and Luke, thanks so much. Our first question, um, it's been wonderful having you as a Dean of this college and we adore the work and effort you put into ensuring CPH is a safe space for both students and staff to strive and have a steady foundation in the field of public health. Could you tell us about your journey on the road to becoming a Dean? So basically what you've done in the past and how your life has changed from 10 or 20 years ago. Okay. So did you ever picture yourself as a Dean? <laughs> no, absolutely not. In fact, when I uh, I kind of came into public health, um, I didn't discover it until after I'd already done my undergrad and I was uh, actually uh, working and teaching um, overseas in Africa when I began to run into a lot of people who had actually trained in public health from my own um, state and sort of began to introduce me to, um, to the concept of public health, etc. So, I came back to get a master's of public health and told everybody there were two things that I didn't, wasn't really interested in. Uh, one was research and one was being a faculty member. I wanted to be a practice practitioner and go right back out into the field. And then somewhere along the way, I worked with a professor, uh, Dr. Eugenia Ng, who uh, brought me in on some of her community-based participatory research projects in uh, Mississippi. And I began to see that Research can really be powerful addressing issues um, and uh, really making a difference. And so that got me thinking, maybe I'd like to do a doctorate, but still I was not going to go into the academy. Um, I was just going to maybe work for CDC or UNICEF or something like that. And um, still not sure what happened, what went wrong, but uh, <laughs> I ended up applying for a job at Michigan thinking that probably didn't have much of a chance. I think I had one publication at the time and no postdoc and ended up getting the job and, uh, and becoming an academic. But even at that time, didn't think that uh, administration was something that I necessarily wanted to do or had the skill set to do. But uh, while at Michigan, I was asked to be an associate dean for academic affairs. And by that time, I'd sort of grown into doing leadership and some research projects. And so realized that I really enjoyed kind of helping others to kind of achieve their goals. And uh, as associate dean, which focused mostly on student affairs, I really enjoyed working with colleagues to try to enhance the educational experience for our students. And that made me interested in coming to Iowa to be a chair of a department, but still never thinking that I would want to be a dean. But uh, when our former dean stepped down, I thought, you know, maybe I'll put my hat in the ring and see what happens thinking that um, the best case scenario or, or, or worst case, whatever you would want to say is if somebody else was chosen, that would be fine. Uh, you know, if those, that person was selected, that was, had better qualifications, et cetera, I would benefit from that. But I'd also, you know, wanted to put my name in because I really loved the college and didn't want to see somebody I thought that might not do us right in that position. Sort of how, how I kind of got there. 
I'm actually glad that you got there because I think <laughs> that job is made for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for that. In your role as a dean, you have to navigate through many decisions that impact the College of Public Health, students, faculty, and, and other staff. What do you think is the most challenging part of being a dean that many people may not recognize or understand? Yeah, no, I think that, that's a very good and timely question during uh, all that's gone on this year. You know, I think one of the things that people don't realize, and I don't think I did until I became a dean, is how much of your work is behind the scenes, uh, dealing with situations or decisions that are not visible or known to your faculty, staff, or students. And, and many of them are sensitive, so you can't really share, you know, information or what happened with meetings with UI leadership or, or what's been shared there, because a lot of those discussions are also confidential. So uh, tell folks, and uh, I always am thinking about our college, but also public health when I'm brought in and for discussions around decisions. But I think the, the other aspect of the job is there's so many stakeholders. I think if you're a student, then you're obviously thinking about what a student needs, what a student feels and what a student wants. And then faculty have different points of view. But being at a state institution, um, in a, being a public institution, then we also have stakeholders throughout the state, uh, the legislature and the regions. So I think balancing all of those doesn't impact me as much, but certainly impacts our more senior leadership. So I think the COVID example, I think there probably were decisions made that maybe were influenced by all of our stakeholders, not just those of us in public health who would say, we need to do it this way to be the absolute uh, safest. So I think that another thing is that oftentimes as a dean, you may be working behind the scenes. So people may not know what, where you're trying to impact change. So it may not show up in my Twitter, which would be hard because I don't tweet. Um, we're working on that. But, uh, but certainly uh, that I'm using um, kind of venues and, and ways to sort of impact change and influence that people may not know is happening. And that certainly has been the case in some of the COVID uh, activities and decisions this year, I think. You know, you say things like having multiple stakeholders to, to yeah. understand and being behind the scenes for a lot of things is kind of your job as a dean is almost like a microcosm of public health writ large, things that we Absolutely. have to think about all yeah. the time. I think it, it really is. And I, I mean, in that sense, I think you make a really good point, Luke, that it's not unique to being a dean. It's what we'll have to do once we all get out in public health because we're always going to be dealing with so many constituents. And I think in, uh, in an election year, but, but every year I think uh, public health and decisions have become um, politicized. Certainly we're seeing it in the pandemic. So that adds a whole different uh, angle and a challenge to, to all that we do, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Cannot agree more. So I think it's safe to say, as you've already kind of mentioned here, uh, that you are a champion in the field of community-based participatory research, which emphasizes the active involvement of community members in all aspects of the research process. How do you think this expertise has influenced your role as a dean during a global pandemic? That's, that's a great question. You know, uh, a couple of things on that. I think one is, for me as a dean, I think one, let me start first is the field in public health and, and maybe some mistakes I think we have made that had we done more of a CBPR approach, we may not. You know, there were a lot of criticisms after the Ebola breakout about um, sort of the way that uh, WHO and other international um, health experts operated 
in the countries in West Africa that had Ebola because they'd come in and say, you need to do X, Y, and Z without kind of engaging with communities there to find out what were the cultural norms and practices. And, uh, you know, a lot of critiques have said, had they done that, then probably then a lot of lives could have been saved and the epidemic could have been um, sort of stopped much sooner if they'd partnered with the communities instead of coming in and and having a bit more of the expert hat on. And and I think that, you know, we've faced a challenge in public health with uh, COVID in that we know that the nature of evolving research changes, but the average citizen sometimes doesn't know that. And so I think we haven't engaged in much, as much as we should to explain the nature of scientific discovery, but also so it can be somewhat fluid. You know, mask at first we were saying don't wear because of the scarcity, then we said we do wear. Then there have been some several things like that as we, you know, as this virus emerges and we learn more about it. But I think had we thought more about engaging people in kind of trying to figure out where they're coming from, we might have, would have sort of increased the support for what we think of our standard best practices in public health. So really taking a more engaged approach. And I think in terms of being dean, what I've learned in general, but certainly came in handy in the pandemic is one is really the need to solicit the viewpoints of, of those most affected by the situation in both in seeing how they're doing, but any decisions that need to be made. And, and by that, I'm thinking I'm sort of narrowed down in, as me as dean of a college. So, you know, throughout this, um, there have been a lot of decisions, some that were kind of given to us by our central administration, some that we were able to uh, enact ourselves, such as our, we are six feet apart. We have a little baby um, kind of uh, uh, modifications to the building in terms of signage, et cetera, that we've done above and beyond uh, what the co- uh, university's done. And a lot of that, I think, is in response, realizing that we are public health and talking to our students, faculty, and staff that, you know, we have to lead by example in that regard. Um, But another is just sort of thinking about what we've done and our decisions and preparation about our college. I decided to have a committee of folks that represented our stakeholders, Uh, not so much students, but student services who are daily in touch with those uh, folks. Because the planning happened, for the most part, when the students were away in early May is when we started thinking about this. Um, But to really uh, kind of ask folks and check in quite often on their new reality. Do they have what they need to be successful? That students access to internet, access to computers. How is this going? Faculty that we've asked a lot of to sort of teach. And actually in some classes, if they were originally on campus, to be also be hybrid and online for those students who may not be able to be on campus because they are vulnerable or they just decided not to come back. But to make sure also that, you know, all of these uh, faculty, students, and staff are doing these things at home with children around, pets, et cetera. And so it adds a, a lot more. So as we make decisions that are in our control, how can we really reach out and make sure that we're uh, making those with people, not to people or on top of people, so to speak? And I think the second is uh, recognizing that uh, because of social determinants of health and health inequities, that there are always going to be persons that are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, uh, as we are seeing now nationally and internationally, but also that this, this kind of hits home to the college that there may be um, decisions we make on how to deliver courses or whether or not to be on campus that may impact folks disproportionately. And, and it goes both ways, you know, um, a lot of 
questions, concerns rightfully about why we didn't go online, but also some questions and concerns about for some students, we may be a safe haven by being able to be on campus or in dorms because they don't have adequate housing or, or safe uh, situations at home. So uh, there's been a few articles on that, you know, balancing all of this, but making sure that we're trying to really engage the people who are most impacted by the decisions we make. I just want to reemphasize something that you said early in that answer, talking about, you know, this challenge, especially early on with, with COVID-19, where you have a lot of panic and fear and it's very fast moving and doing something as important as community-based participatory research is going to help in the long run, but making sure you have this balance between that fast moving pace, but also understanding and listening to all of the constituents. And like you said, using the social determinants of health in that decision-making is, is really important. So I'm glad that you touched on that. Yes, that was actually going to really be our next question. Okay. About social determinants of health which honestly I think is one of my most interesting topics in public health. And I thank God I came into public health and I could learn about that. So we're actually pleased to see that um, talking about social determinants of health and health disparities was a huge part or is a huge part of your research. So we're hoping if you could talk to us a little bit more about that concerning your research. Well, prior, prior to coming to Iowa, much of my research was uh, in the area of environmental health, particularly um, elucidating environmental causes for asthma and then designing interventions that, uh, that could sort of improve or alleviate the um, asthma symptoms for kids. That work was in Detroit. It was community-based participatory research. And I think in that research, you know, oftentimes we think of asthma as a health issue, but my gosh, if there's ever been one that uh, just says social determinants of health all over it and environmental justice and health inequities, then it is asthma. So I really saw the firsthand the impact of, of social determinants of health issues such as unaffordable housing, unsafe housing, you know, living conditions with all kinds of um, pests, um, cockroaches being a, a huge one. And, you know, I think we sometimes, or let's say not, y'all are more sophisticated than most people are, but, you know, growing up in the South, we lived um, with cockroaches in and out. And uh, my mother was always horrified because she felt like it was a sign that she wasn't keeping the house clean. But realizing that uh, if you're living in an apartment that you don't own in, um, one of a multi-tenant house. And even if you do everything to get rid of the cockroaches, uh, the chances are that they're going to go to the neighbors and then come back again. So, and that also a lot of the ways that if you are, don't have resources to do integrated pest management, the way you may get rid of cockroaches or mice or whatever that impacts your child's asthma may actually be detrimental to your child's asthma because of the aerosols of say, you know, raid and things like that and the chemicals you may use. So I think housing is, is one example of that and people's ability to get safe housing. You know, access to, I mean, our exposure to poor air quality. Um, a lot of ours was uh, working in neighborhoods where there were approximately about 7,500 trucks. Diesel trucks would come through this neighborhood every day from the crossing from the Canadian border into Detroit. That area was deemed to not be in attainment for air quality standards. 
And yet there was a project that was being proposed by the Michigan Department of Transportation to add an intermodal freight transport that may increase the truck traffic by another 7,000 trucks a day. And when, um, you know, we were able to present data that showed that there was already um, a profound impact of when the air, uh, you know, air pollution levels would go up, uh, that you would see a three-day lag and then the child's asthma symptoms would go up. Um, and the answer was, well, it's already not in attainment. So what does what does it more, you know, what what are more trucks going to do? Well, we didn't actually have the research to show a really uh, dose response uh, at that time. So we still were had to sort of double down on some other other data we did just to say that that, that doesn't quite make logical sense that you put more trucks in when you when you already have a problem. And so I think we're able to, to address that. But in thinking about social determinants health, for me, it was real education and policy because all of these plans for this intermodal freight transport had been put on the books years before without community input. And so now it had showed up in the community and there was a lot of communities trying to mobilize around that. It was took a lot more effort to do that, whereas, you know, if you could get it on the front end and, and be sort of a little bit more informed about policy, as we all should by citizens, you know, should always be, regardless of our political affiliation, we should be actively engaged in our communities and know what is coming. So I think it was poor air quality, lack of transportation, uh, lack of access to health care, and exposure to really stressful life events. I think one of the saddest things, this was a we had a household intervention, and as we were enrolling in the intervention, three children died of asthma at schools, and part of that were school policies around um, access to inhalers and whether the kids could keep the inhalers with them at the time, you know, while they were at schools, and so that was three totally avoidable, unnecessarily deaths, and, and sort of spoke to me about all of this you know, the impact of social determinants of health um, health of children with asthma. So I think when we came, came when my husband and I moved here and I took the job, we worked, sort of switched the focus more. And I was, um, the happened to be the PI of the Prevention Research Center, which is CDC funded, where we were working more on rural health and obesity issues around physical activity. But many of those same um, social determinants of health uh, impact there of people's access to healthy foods. We know food deserts uh, are present in rural areas, just as they are in uh, urban areas. And so, so many of those things are, are, are those two contexts and are really important to health outcomes. It's ridiculous how a lot of people or how in the society social determinants of health in as much as it plays a huge role I think one of the biggest roles honestly in health outcomes it's also belittled at the same time and it's not a conversation that you know people usually have and I think since I came into public health I know of social determinants of health and it's something that I look out for and we've been having multiple conversations but then you come out of public health and no one is really having you know those conversations also because you know they're not aware or even if we know that oh there are these things affecting our health outcomes but you don't know how to really like navigate through all those um, problems because you don't even know their problems or their problems you can talk about you know in the first place and kind of when you talked about doing things without asking the community for what they need so you know without adding the community as stakeholders it's 
even like my own country, I'm from Nigeria, and it's something that, you know, it's a recurring thing. Even right now, there are things going on in my country that I'm going to talk about in a different podcast, hopefully. But we're seeing more and more like people are trying to, you know, themselves on the policies that we have. But then again, the way policies are written, I think it's hard for, you know, the average citizen to kind of understand which is where I also think public health will come into, you know, trying to translate all those jargons into things that people can actually read and understand. You know, I think in public health, we, um, I hope we do a good job across all departments of thinking, making our students think ecologically in the sense of, you know, you've seen the ecological framework where, and a lots of times, uh, you know, if you've seen the figures, I think um, healthcare contributes, RWJ's figure says healthcare itself in mm-hmm. another probably contributes maybe 20 percent of your overall health uh, like 20 yeah. Of that. yeah or even less I think in some figures um, but that's where we tend to focus a lot on that individual afterwards and not thinking about what are the upstream social determinants of causes at those other levels in the community or policy being a big driver of that that if we focus there, we could have a much better population outcomes and and prevention, I think. So I think you're right about that. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of add on to to what both of you are talking about, thinking about this from a framework of a gradient and and being dynamic in how you work through problems, like you said, maybe something at the community level might be really helpful to go upstream to the policy. Uh, It also has to go downstream to each individual. And going between those levels is one of the most important aspects of public health. And I'm, I'm really glad that you emphasize that. And you've clearly demonstrated that in your research and, and what you do for the college. What would you say is the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome or are still currently trying to overcome as dean during this pandemic? Thinking as being a dean of any college uh, in this kind of unique time, but um, I think it's really trying to keep a sense of community uh, for our students, our staff, and our faculty. We're working remotely. We don't see each other. We don't have those, you know, hallway conversations uh, where I can stop and say, hey, Luke, how's it going? And you can say, well, I just had four exams and two papers, and I'm exhausted, and I could buy you a cup of coffee at the snack bar. Um, uh, but, you know, along with those, I think, as in, touched on this before, is with those, you know, I'm worried about our, all of our mental health. I'm worried about all of the stress that we're under, uh, not only from the pandemic, but we have what was going on before. And then we have all of the events of the pandemic that have disrupted the way we do things. You know, we're sitting at a screen. We're not moving as much as we used to. And I think many of our um, students are... Uh, faculty and staff may have family members who've been disproportionately impacted either because they got COVID, some of them because they know people who died from COVID, many of them who maybe they had loved ones or friends who lost their jobs. So so it's sort of reached into every aspect of our life. And so, you know, we have been trying to find ways to make sure that we're communicating often Um, and trying to let people know you've got to let us know if there's anything we can do to make life easier. So I encourage both both of you two, but anybody who's listening to please, you know, keep, keep letting us know what you need and how we can best support you in this time. Because I think 
you know, realistically, uh, we don't have a vaccine. I don't know when we'll have one. And when we do have one that seems promising, then there's going to have to be the ramp up and the prioritization. So it very well, I think we probably will still be online for the spring semester, I imagined. Um, I know we haven't heard that officially, but we're leaning that way and we'll have to, or not online, but hybrid. Um, and, and as you may know, we have tried as much as possible to de-densify our building by having people work from home if they can do so. And, and so I think we're gonna to have to try to keep the, making those decisions as prudent as we can for everybody's health. But all of that I think has implications for how we normally operate and, and the kind of um, interactions we have that I think are so important for us in our sense of community. Absolutely, I cannot agree more. And I, I'll be the first to tell you that I, I think you've done a wonderful job trying to keep that community. I know from a personal perspective, um, I was a little bit worried about that aspect of it because that's something that I think I can speak for myself and for probably many others that the thing that makes our college really unique and really special for a lot of people is the sense of community and, and not having that can be difficult, whether it be with collaboration in, in education or with strictly social characteristics. So uh, yeah. Well, I said often, I think I owe a lot of meals to a lot of people. You know, we didn't have, we didn't have our fall picnic or a food truck. So I'm that. And uh, there have been several events where I've had to say to people, put it, put it on my IOU list. So it's getting pretty long. So <laughs> a lot of meals when we come out of this. Um, we know you'll come through. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope so. You know, here's another interesting thing is just, I've, I've talked to other deans of public health, and I think uh, this is another sort of obstacle. In, in, um, and I think for all of us to realize that we have to keep saying, here we are in a public health pandemic. And I think that um, oftentimes our voice has not been heard as much on uh, campuses or states or national efforts of what we should do. Um, example being, I think um, I've had a lot of talks about testing, testing strategies, and you know there are a lot of new tests coming out. There, a lot of them have emergency use authorizations from FDA. Uh, some are not as sensitive or specific as uh, the gold standard, which is the PCR nasopharyngeal test. Mm -hmm. Yet some of them seem to be promising. And then also, it, I just had an aha moment when I was talking to a dean. I think some of the kind of reluctance of particularly clinicians or, or you know, folks in, in medicine to rely on these is that they're thinking about clinical care where you have to be absolutely sure that it's 100% specificity and 100% sensitive. We in public health, because we're thinking populations, may say, okay, I'll take a little bit less sensitivity and a little bit specificity because I'm trying to get a picture of a whole population, not this one individual right here in front of me that I have to treat. And I think that that's something that I, I've realized I need to reorient my messaging around to others is to sort of really uh, make that point across because it just occurred to me it's a clash, I think, of sort of cultures and ways of thinking about things that, that I had not thought about until I just had a conversation with a few deans um, at other schools of public health who were facing similar situations. What do you think is the most pressing issue in your field of expertise that you want to address in your career? I think one of the pressing problems is the lack of funding for prevention uh, in both practice and in research. 
one of the ways this manifests itself, say, for example, I do a lot of, I'm in community behavioral health, so we're trying to find ways to help folks, um, you know, live the healthiest life possible, which oftentimes involves what we know are healthy behaviors. But to do that, not in a way necessarily where you say you must do this because that never works. Well, it might in a small percent of the population. But really to think about using uh, all the levers, as Luke was saying, of uh, everything from policy to community and to, you know, social networks that we have that may influence our behavior. And yet, if you think about it, and if you look at the figures of uh, where funding goes, say for cancer, which is non-communicable disease, there's estimates that behaviors contribute maybe more than 40% of, to more than 40% of the incidents, but the funding for behavioral prevention can be less than 5% of the research budget. Now, it depends on how you define that in NIH. Sometimes it gets larger, but I mean, for pure behavioral interventions. And then I read a stat the other day that really, uh, boy, impressed me, and maybe not in a positive way, but, um, and that is that uh, thinking about COVID-19 research, and, and this was probably, this was a scan that was done in back in maybe April, or May, I, mean, I think it came out in May, and this was worldwide, that uh, they were looking at what research had been funded around COVID-19. And they found that there were 975 registered clinical trials, 46 had reported uh, results, those were drug trials, but only six registered trials looking at behavioral, environmental, social, or systems interventions, and only one reported. And why I think this is important is I happened to be watching 60 Minutes the other night when they were talking about vaccines. In the very end, they asked uh, somebody about a vaccine, and if one came out, I think the question was, would you still wear a mask? And they were like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, the, it, while the, the single most important thing that we're finding right now is probably wearing a mask if it was one magic bullet. Of course, we also wanted social distance and all. You know, we know the message. And so, you know, we've had this discussion um, with a, a research council for associations of schools of programs of public health with the deans. I'm on a research committee there about how even in NIH, it's disproportionately for drug discovery or development or basic sciences, which don't get me wrong. That's that's crucial. You know, what we know about uh, what, as back to the RWJ reference I made, of what really creates health, and a lot of it is social determinants of health, which directly affect health and also directly influence behaviors, and behaviors influence health. So, you know, if we could sort of kind of change our narrative, and that's not only in research, but in practice, we're seeing it now. Uh, we were not prepared with the amount of um, public health on the ground staff to be able to do contact tracing, uh, to be able to, you know, keep stats fresh and accurate and updated, et cetera. So um, I think those are two areas that uh, I think are really crucial and incumbent upon uh, folks such as me, but all of us to talk to our policymakers and say, you know, we need a basic um, and a strongly uh, supported public health because it really does impact us all. It's not, you know, one person or uh, it, it, it's all of us and we would all benefit from that. You know, I think the one thing that I am hoping a positive thing to come out of this pandemic is just people understanding what public health is, what we do, and then, like you said, making that translation to policy and, and funding, having a broader and, and more grounded public health infrastructure for the mm -hmm. future, as we've seen with other 
situations. Uh, for example, I believe it was after 9-11, there was a lot of funding pushed towards public health. And then as they do their job, this is something we talk about all the time, as public health works in the background and things don't happen, it's easy to say, oh, well, we can take a little from here, take a little from here, and slowly you find yourself in a very vulnerable situation if, if something like a global pandemic happens. And I hope that, you know, the one thing from this will be that people broad scale, but, you know, like you said, policymakers will understand the importance of having a robust infrastructure in public health. bottom top approach instead of always a top bottom approach mm-hmm. most times you don't know what they need and as we've seen this year like a lot of things have happened so far in 2020 and it still ha- it keeps on happening and it's not just a 2020 thing it's been happening over the years where people keep on speaking saying what they need over and over again but no one is listening and there's just so much you can say and if nothing is done at the top then nothing is done you can't yeah so i just think i don't know because most times you see that like protests happening everywhere around the world people get frustrated people come out do what they can and then nothing is being done it's just something i can never really wrap my head around and even public health we try but then again without the funding there's only so much we can do well you know there's been quite a lot um written in what is it public health 3.0 i think is what you know and y'all probably study that about um and I think it's one thing that we probably haven't done as well, or I, I won't, maybe I should I say I probably haven't also, but as, as a field, I think, and that is, you know, reaching out to other sectors because we've sort of been, this is what we do and this is our responsibility. But as, as the resources have gone away, I think it is incumbent on us to sort of remind, and, and there's some good models in the college, like our healthier workforce of reminding employers that we're here as a resource for you. Let's work together to establish, you know, not only health protection of safety at work sites, but also health promotion, how you can make your work, you know, your workforce um, um, help them to be more healthy, which then of course can help with your, your bottom line too of productivity. Mm -hmm. So I think um, there's a lot of push and maybe a lot more that we need to start doing. And Mm -hmm. I think, you two and your classmates are the perfect uh, group to sort of start. Sorry. Rethink it. Yeah. Public health as a chief health strategist. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. If yes. the people at Top Home Support, then we brand ourselves <laughs> with um, key stakeholders who also have revenue, I guess, and then make it happen for ourselves. Yes, exactly. As one of my favorite activists said, we own the government <laughs> they work for us <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah and, and that's true and i think sometimes we kind of forget that that mm-hmm. uh, that's we are their bosses mm-hmm. we have one last question for you uh, what is one thing that you thought you knew but were later wrong about Ooh, i don't think we have enough time on this podcast to <laughs> Particularly, I think, you know, thinking about our discussion about the merging nature of science and what at any time I thought when we were doing data and then we think we've got this and then we find out later that maybe that was not the case. But mm-hmm. I think I'm going to take this a little bit different because I, I think about sort of thinking about early in my career. And, uh, and I think one of the things when I was a newly minted uh, faculty member was that I was always, I think, oftentimes kind of reluctant to speak up unless I thought I was 100% sure that the answer was right. And now 
as with age comes wisdom, maybe, maybe not, but realizing that A, I, I lost a lot of opportunity for good dialogue. B, um, I also realized I would beat myself up if I said something that I thought was not the most brilliant in the world. And then uh, only to realize that that's kind of the price of doing business in the world. And so I think that uh, what I kind of realized much later is that it's, it's okay to be wrong about something. Uh, we're never right all the time. It's not, it's not okay to be wrong about something and keep being wrong, you know, not change when you, in the face of evidence that you're, you know, you're not right about that. But I think it's also okay to sort of learn and change your mind. I think it was it uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, foolish consistencies are the hobgoblins of little minds. And I think um, that's something to sort of think as you grow, uh, you know, in your career and as a professional um, that don't uh, don't worry that you might not always have the right answer because uh, that's part of learning. And, and it took me years later when a colleague said, you know, when you're a newly minted doctoral student, you think that you're you're supposed to know everything, but you're just sort of at the start of your trajectory. And I think that's true. We give you, I hope, a really good education, but we can't teach you everything. And so you're going to learn on the way. But get out there, explore, and, uh, and don't be shy about speaking up. Thank you. That was great advice. Yes, thank you. A popular saying, perfect is the enemy of good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I find, yeah. Ooh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you, you both so much. This has been a wonderful, enjoyed our conversation. Great questions and great comments from you guys. That's it for our show. Thanks to Dean Parker for coming on to chat with us. Today's episode was hosted and written by Oge Chibo and Luke Sampson. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Sonnier. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. You can reach out to our team at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. That's cph-gradambassador. A-D-O-R at U-I-O-W-A dot E-D-U. Thanks again for everyone for tuning in this week. We hope you stay safe and healthy out there. See you next week.